Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. And thank you again, brothers and sisters, for assembling together for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. And I invite you this morning to turn in your copy of God's Word to the uh, book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we'll be looking at chapter 1 where we are making our way through this epistle by the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter, this morning, chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 21. Before we launch into those verses, I would like to just kind of back up and do a quick review, just to kind of put everything in context to help us to see the big picture, if you will. First, as you look against uh, holding 1 Peter against 2 Peter, you may recall that in, in Peter's first epistle, in 1 Peter, he's focusing on believers who are going through times of, uh, of, of living in the midst of suffering and increasing persecution. And with that as a backdrop, he's instructing them and, and us, consequently, through these words, to live in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship and even in the midst of, of persecution, to, to be able to live victoriously, to live successfully as a people of God with a steadfast hope and with an uh, absolute dependence upon the Lord, a trust in the Lord, resisting the tendency to be bitter or, 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 or to be upset with those who may treat us badly, but instead to trust in the Lord almost as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. So in, in what they're going through, Peter is continually encouraging them to look to the Lord, look to His Word, to look to the presence of His Spirit, but also he encourages those early believers to continually yearn for the second coming of Christ. And we'll look at that even in the portion that we'll look at in first in second peter chapter one and so he's encouraging these christians in the midst of hardship and struggle and uncertainty in a world that's chaotic and and, and hostile sounds kind of like our world peter reminds those early believers throughout asia minor that in the midst of all of that <clears throat> when you do these things you can still be an, an evangelical witness to those who are around you who don't know Christ. And in fact, you'll be a great witness. The way that you handle your adversity, the way that you handle persecution, the way that you handle pain and suffering, trusting in the Lord is a powerful witness to those who don't know the Lord. You may recall then when we shifted over to 2 Peter that the theme changed somewhat. Instead of focusing primarily on the persecution and suffering that the early Christians were going through, even though it's understood that those Christians throughout Asia Minor and probably throughout the Roman Empire were probably suffering even more because of the deranged ruler uh, Nero, the, the Roman emperor, and his determination to persecute the church and Christians. And so Peter's writing from prison, probably there in Rome, awaiting his own execution, knowing that he's probably soon to be executed by Nero, which Jesus had already predicted would happen to him, so it's no surprise to Peter. And we'll see this embedded in the element of, of the Scripture we'll look at this morning. So I, I shared with you earlier that Second Peter, unlike First Peter, is, is almost like Peter's swan song, comparable to Paul's Second Timothy. He knows his time is drawing near. What do you say when you know you're about to leave this world? What do you say when you're the leader of the church? So many young congregations and young believers who have looked to you and, 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 and followed your teaching and your leadership. And so with his own death approaching, 
Peter is, is reminding believers of God's provision, God's faithfulness, God's precious promises that never fail. And he's, he's reminded them they can always look to that and, and enable them to, to, to manifest godly characteristics that we saw in those first verses of chapter 1 of 2 Peter where he talked about all the different qualities of godliness such as self-control and perseverance and, and brotherly kindness and love and faith and virtue and knowledge. All of these things, Peter says, just look to the Lord. Depend upon the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And you can rise above. You can rise above this world. You know, I've challenged you just about every Sunday in preaching through this series that we as Christians must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency if we want to embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We have to understand that, yes, we're going through life on this earth. And, and this time that we spend on the earth, whether it's a few decades or a hundred years, is, is so small, so insignificant in terms of eternity. And yet, Peter is encouraging those other those early Christians to rise above, rise above their entanglements of persecution and suffering and hardship and problems to embrace who they are. They're citizens of the kingdom of God and so are you. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and, and His blood has been applied to, to, to your sinfulness and you've been washed by the blood of Christ and adopted into the family of God and bestowed with the precious gift of eternal life, you are a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. Even better, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, you and I are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Folks, it doesn't get any better than that. And that's who we are. And we need to embrace that as much as we can to see the perspective that the Word of God gives to us. So with that backdrop, we look at verses 12 through 15 in chapter 1 of 2 Peter as Peter continues. And you'll understand how this, this book is seen as his, as, as his swan song, if you will. Because what we're looking at first in these first verses, beginning there in verse 12, is the Apostle's farewell address. A portion of the Apostles' farewell address. I've often wondered, you know, what would I say to Cornerstone? If I knew this was my last Sunday to be in the pulpit or have the privilege to minister to you, having had the privilege of being a part of your lives for 30 years, what, what, what would I say? How, how could I encourage you to continue on? You know, the Lord has a sense of humor. He says, dummy, it could be your last Sunday. <laughs> Preach with the same fervor. Preach with the zeal. Preach with the Word of God to, to point them to the future. Give them, equip them to go on without you. To be successful. To be the church. The body of Christ. So that's what's getting right now. God is so good. Amen. You know, Peter is preaching or teaching this portion of his Word. Look there in verse 12 with me. Chapter 1. Therefore... Peter says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the, in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. He's speaking of his physical body. And it's interesting because Peter uses the same basic terminology that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. He talked about his body as a tent. I don't know how many of you 
or experts at camping out like Brother Richard Stovall. I understand he and Jack tackled the wilderness a few weeks ago. And uh, I don't know how many bears they wrestled and, you know, eating wild game and stuff like that. But anyway, I was impressed. But, but you know, a tent, I'm sure Richard, you know, suffering through the hardships of, uh, and the inconveniences and, and all that go along with tent living, Jack. I'm sure that you were constantly telling yourself, this is not my home. This is not my home. <laughs> I'm going to fold this baby up and go home tomorrow to my bed and the comforts of home. And all of us that have had the experience. And I like to camp. I do. I've always enjoyed camping from the time I was a kid. You know, and Peter and Paul both saw these bodies. And, you know, sometimes we worship these bodies. People spend so much money trying to keep their bodies looking youthful and healthy. And, and there's nothing wrong with staying healthy. It's nothing wrong with looking good and that type of thing. But, folks, this is not our home. This body that we're occupying is a tent. And that's what Peter says. And that's what Paul says. One day we're going to lay this tent aside. And, and it's going to be worn out. Mine's getting that way pretty fast. And, and so, you know, Peter's saying, you know, this is, this is a, a tent. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off the, my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. In other words, Jesus had already told him that he would be martyred for the faith. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So what we see in the Apostles' farewell address, Peter's basically following and upholding a long-standing biblical tradition that goes all the way back through the Old Testament, all the way up into the New Testament. And that is when, when key leaders, faithful men of God, were, were ready to leave and they sensed their time was approaching of their death and their departure from the midst of their followers and their, their descendants. You'll find these wonderful times that farewell addresses are given. I'll just walk you through a few. For instance, uh, as you look at the precedent that Peter's following, you could go back to Genesis chapter 49. You don't have to turn back there, and I'm not going to read all that text. But you'll find a wonderful uh, discourse. As Abraham, or rather Jacob, is given his farewell address, he's blessing all of his sons, who, by the way, would be ultimately the leaders of the tribes of the nation of Israel. And Jacob is blessing each one of them. And so you have that farewell address, Jacob, to his sons. But then if you fast forward in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy in chapter 33, verses 1 through 29, you'll find Moses. What do you say, Moses? As Moses' death was approaching, he knew that his time was drawing near. And he led these people through so many trials and, and perils and, and victories. And, and so in Deuteronomy 33, you find Moses in his farewell address to the, to the nation of Israel, giving them blessings, blessing the respective tribes of, of the nation of Israel. But then when I think about farewell addresses given in the Old Testament, you know, I can't help but go back to good old Joshua. Good old Joshua. He took over as leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. They had their great victories. And now he's getting to the point he's about ready to, to, to pass on. At 110, the Bible tells us. But in his powerful farewell address to the children of Israel, now in the promised land, now you know, uh, uh, there where God had said would be their home, now in that promised land, and, and what is Joshua saying? I, I, excerpt, I excerpted out of that, excerpt out of that, verse 15. I think it's probably the most memorable verse out of Joshua's farewell address to the nation of Israel. And that is this. He says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, that's back in Egypt, 
Or the gods of the Amorites, in other words, their neighbors, their pagan neighbors around them, in whose land you dwell. But listen to what he said. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then, of course, the nation responded resoundingly, we will serve the Lord too. Those are some examples of those wonderful farewell addresses that we find in the scriptures. But you know, that's, those are not the only ones. I think about in John's gospel, chapter 13, we have a wonderful recollection given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where the apostle John records those uh, last words that Jesus, before his, his, his arrest and his crucifixion, you know, Jesus is teaching some powerful lessons to his disciples, beginning in John chapter 13, where he's teaching about the, the new commandment, that they have a responsibility to love one another. He's in chapter 14, he's talking about heaven. You know, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. He talked about his true identity as he is the Son of God and the Son and the Father are one. And, and, and on and on, all the way through chapter 17 in that wonderful pastoral prayer. Well, Jesus is praying for the church. Listen, all of this is impacted right there, all compacted in those, in those chapters. Four chapters, we find Jesus leaving a powerful farewell address to his disciples prior to his own crucifixion. And then I think about over in the book of Acts as Luke records for us another powerful farewell address by the apostle Paul. On his missionary journeys, Paul is concluding his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's at the island of Miletus, and, uh, and, uh, or at the port of Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the church of Ephesus to meet him there at the port. He doesn't have time to go to Ephesus because he's driven by the Spirit of God to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to meet persecution. That would ultimately lead to his arrest and then being shipped to Rome where he'll be beheaded. And he calls these faithful elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him there. And Paul gives a powerful, wonderful uh, 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 farewell address to those elders. And, and, and he's, he's pouring his heart out to these men that he has, he has brought to Christ, to this church that he has brought up out of nothingness to be a strong church in that part of the Roman Empire. And, and knowing this is the last time that he'll see these men, the last time that he'll teach these men, he's given them powerful words of warning and, 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 and encouragement. But, but as, at the end of that wonderful uh, farewell address, this is the response of those elders there in verse 36 of Acts chapter 20. It says, and when he, Paul, had, had said these things, he knelt down. Just, just envision this. Just to try to capture the, the emotions of this moment. Is this powerful man of God in, in his last time with these brothers that, that were serving along with him in the kingdom of God, it says is he, he knelt down and he prayed with all of them and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they wouldn't see his face no more. And they walked with him all the way to the ship. Powerful words. And Peter is given this farewell address here to the church, the churches that this, this letter is circulating around in, in Asia Minor. But I want you to see not only the precedent of, of the apostles' farewell address, but understand the purpose of this farewell address. And, and, and you know, it's important to see that, that Peter is wanting to remind them 
I know sometimes we don't like repetition, but folks, repetition is important to learning. And you know, and, and through the scriptures, you'll find good illustrations of the importance of repetition. I think about over in, in the book of Deuteronomy where, you know, God was speaking to Moses to the nation of Israel. And, and, and he's, he, God is imparting these divinely inspired words. And, and there in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you may recall where, where God is saying through Moses to the nation of Israel, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk with them uh, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, and, shall, and shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. Repetition. Tell the children. Tell them. Keep telling them day after day after day. Repetition. <laughs> Gee, the, the Lord implied that in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 when he's, he's challenging Joshua and he's, he's encouraging Joshua as Joshua is taking over the, the helm of leadership of the nation of Israel there in chapter 1 and verse 8 and he says this book of the law shall not, not depart from your lips but you shall meditate on it both day and night day and night that you may observe to do all that is written therein. And this will cause you to prosper and you will have good success, Joshua. Joshua, repeatedly, repeatedly be reminded of the Word of God. Peter is, is encouraging the Christians here. In this farewell address, the purpose of this address is to ingrain them with the truth of God's Word. He says, I know you know this stuff. I know you've heard this before. But i got to tell you again, and I want to keep telling you again, so that when I'm gone, it'll resonate in your mind. You'll, be, you'll remind yourselves of this. Repetition is good. Repetition is important. I know sometimes you'll hear messages, oh, preacher, I've heard that message before. You know, <laughs> how many of y'all heard the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man? What was in your Christian growth group lesson today? Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Listen, it's okay to repeat these lessons. They're there for the important purpose. And Peter's saying, I want to remind you of the things that are very vital to your continued existence and your success as a body of believers. Just a few Sundays ago, we saw Pastor Tim bring one of his students up here, Jack Stovall. And Jack impressively walked us through the outline of the Old Testament. Let me tell you something. Commend, I commend Jack as a student. I commend Pastor Tim as a, as a teacher. I guarantee you that that was not, they didn't just hear that lesson one Sunday. I guarantee you that they were drilled on that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday until it became a part of them. That's how learning the Word of God takes place. That's how applying the Word of God takes place. The Bible continually encourages the people of God to remember, to repeat, and remember. But not only that, the Apostle Peter is wanting to just not just be boringly repetitious, but to remind the people of the important things of the Word of God that he has taught them, that they've heard from other apostles, that they may be equipped, that they may be equipped to confront the false teachers. One of the primary needs of the, of, of the second Peter is not dealing so much with persecution and suffering as it is confronting the presence, the increasingly growing presence of false teachers that were infiltrating the early church even at that early stage. And Peter knew it. 
And he was saying, I want to teach you these things so that you'll know how to confront those who come with heresy and false teachings. And the same principle applies today. That's why the pastoral team and your teachers are so diligent to teach you the Word of God. We want you to know the Word of God. We want you to be thorough in the Word of God. Not that you can be scholarly and brag about how much you know. No, that you may be equipped to deal with the plethora of false teachings and false heresies that are going around and are infiltrating churches today that don't put their guard up. You need to know what false teaching looks like. I heard someone say that in the bank... They train the tellers in, in dealing with counterfeit money. They don't train them so much to look at the, the characteristics of the counterfeit bills. They train them in how, what a, an authentic bill looks like. Every minute, intricate detail. They memorize what those true, authentic bills look like. So that when a false one comes up, they say, wait a minute, here's a flaw. It's not the real thing. Same thing. I don't need to have extended seminars on what the false religions teach. I just need to teach you, preach to you what the Bible says we need to know about the truth. And when we know the truth, we'll recognize a lie. We'll recognize heresy. And we'll dispel it in a heartbeat. And that was one of the reasons that Peter was being so diligent, even as he knew his time was approaching. Because we'll see a sample of what these false teachers and these false preachers were professing about Paul. Look with me in verse 16. Paul, uh, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Now just stop there for a second. Why is Peter even bringing that up? We, speaking of himself and those who work with him and other apostles, he says we, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Let me tell you something. In that first century, Greco-Roman Empire, the society in which the people lived was saturated with Greek mythology and Roman fables. It was embedded in the daily lives of the people and in the false religions that many of them were a part of. So Paul, uh, Peter's accusers, they were falsely accusing Peter as when it came to his teachings on the second coming of Christ... They were saying, there's no such thing. Peter's making this up. It's just like the, the fable of Hercules or, or Zeus. or Yeah, yeah, this, this stuff's not real. See, Peter had already taught this back in 1 Peter in chapter 1. In verse 7, Peter powerfully prepared the people for what he called would be the revelation of Jesus Christ there in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7. Peter, like all the other apostles... Well, they were teaching that Jesus is coming again. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory. But listen, that message didn't originate with Peter and Paul and the other apostles because Jesus himself had taught that in his own teaching. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, this is Jesus. And he says, and he said it before. He says, the, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then 
He will sit on the throne of his glory. Peter didn't make this up. This was not new teaching. This was teaching already coming directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the teaching of the apostle Paul and the other apostles. And so Peter is, is dispelling the false accusations that what he was proposing to them were fables. He said, oh no, no. They didn't attack just Peter's message, folks. These false heretics. They were out to get him. Just like the false teachers are today. The false prophets are today. They, they despise genuine men of God. They despise accurate teaching of the word of God. And they'll conjure up all kinds of stories about true teachers to undermine their ministries. And that's what was happening. They were trying to say to, say to the people, that, oh yeah, Peter's preaching all this stuff about the second coming. He's just building up his own following. He's wanting to pad his own pockets. Which is totally untrue. Peter, just like Paul and the other apostles, made great sacrifices to carry on the work of the kingdom and to, to be uh, out there amongst the, the churches. But so, so as we look at there at verse 16, and, and I'll read with you down through verse 18, I want you to see how Peter responds to these false accusations. When they were saying, oh, you just made this up, Peter. These are just fables. These are just myths. For, look at verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, look at this, eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, John made a big deal of that too in his own gospel in chapter 1 verse 14. John says, talking about the word, and the word was of course God, Christ. And he said, that, and the word speaking of Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He wasn't just an ordinary man. We saw his glory. We saw his glory in his powerful, majestic teachings. We saw his glory when he cast demons out of possessed people. We saw his glory when he gave life back to dead people. We saw his glory when he worked miracles. Oh, just his ministry before us. We saw his glory. But Peter's saying here in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, listen, I didn't, what I'm teaching about the second coming of Christ and Jesus coming in his power and glory, he says, listen, you're, you're talking to a first-hand eyewitness. And what Peter's referring to occurred actually over in Matthew chapter 16. Let me just get, take you back there very quickly. I know our time is moving along, but... But, but there was an occasion when Jesus was teaching his disciples. And, and of course, there in, in, in Matthew, 20, that Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now listen to what he says in verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, he's talking to his disciples, there are some standing here who shall taste death, who shall, who shall not taste death, they shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man, that's his messianic title, coming in his kingdom. They will see his glory. And Jesus wasted no time. Because in chapter 17, Jesus took James, John, and Peter. And he went up on the top of the mountain probably Mount Horeb. And there Jesus was transfigured. 
the scripture describes how this, these, these three men, Peter included, saw the very Shekinah glory of Christ shining through him brilliantly. Just like Revelation 21 describes it when he, Jesus, is the centerpiece of New Jerusalem. That city won't need a sun. It won't need a moon. Because the Son of God in His glory will be the source of light for us in heaven. And Peter was beginning to see a glimpse of the divine glory of Christ begin to shine through. The same glory in which Christ will come one day with all of His angels. He will be coming in power and He will be coming in full glory. And Peter says, it wasn't a myth. It wasn't a fable. Let me tell you something. I had the privilege of seeing firsthand the very glory of the one who's coming. And he is the Son of God. Peter was a witness of that. Peter says, I can speak authoritatively. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming one day in power and in glory. And he says, I can say that authoritatively because I saw it firsthand. I didn't get this from James. I didn't get it from John. I didn't get it from any other apostle. I was there on that mountain myself. And I was the very one that opened my big mouth and suggested that Jesus would build three, that they should build three tabernacles, one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah, as if Jesus was equal with those other two men. And he said, I heard a voice from heaven. It was God saying, be quiet, in essence. <laughs> Shut up, boy. Don't you understand? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, that's paraphrasing a little bit. Not many people get told by the Father in heaven to be quiet. Look at verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came down to him from the excellent glory. Speaking of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And listen. Look at verse 18. And we. Who's we? Peter, James, and John. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You couldn't argue Peter out of the second coming of Christ if you put a bow and arrow to his head. They didn't have guns. <laughs> you couldn't out argue him. You could never change his mind on the reality that Jesus was coming again. And when he came, he would come in the full glory, not just the partial glory that he saw. Because Peter would never forget that mountaintop experience and that voice that he heard from the Father. Let me tell you something. You have opportunity to share Christ with, every, with others around you. Maybe co-workers or friends or neighbors or schoolmates or family members that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, you can share, certainly you ought to begin by sharing the Bible. You ought to share the Word of God. Just tell them what the Scripture says about sin and about salvation, about Jesus Christ. But you know you also have a testimony. You have a story. You have a first-hand witness account. Of your own salvation and of your sanctification. What Jesus did for you. When he saved you, but what he's been doing and is doing in your life and changing and transforming you and giving you hope and giving you peace and giving you confidence and giving you the future. Let me tell you something. People might argue with you and me about the Bible and they sure will. 
But here's the footnote. They can never argue with you about your story. You are an authority on what Christ has done in your life. And nobody can take that away. Nobody can challenge that. And God's people need to speak like Peter more authoritatively by saying, Hold on! As my, as my grandson Asher would do when things aren't going his way. Time out! Time out! Right, Asher? Time out! Peter said, Time out. Cut this nonsense out. I'll tell you what I saw firsthand. I need to move along because not only was Peter relied upon the authoritative claim of being an eyewitness, but the absolute authority of the Word of God. In verse 19, Peter says, We also have the prophetic word. That's the Old Testament, the scripture that has been canonized to that point. We, we also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Listen, as important as Peter's personal experience was, he understood that the true ultimate authority the primary authority was the Word of God. In other words, it didn't, the second coming of Christ didn't rely totally, it didn't hinge on Peter's witness in his testimony. That just, that just supported what the Word of God, the Word of God has been saying from the dawn of time that Jesus, the, the Messiah, was coming again. The prophets preached about it. The, pre, the prophets foretold that the Messiah was coming again. Jesus taught about it. The apostles taught about it. The Word of God, the Old Testament, is like a guide. That's what Peter says. Use the Word of God like a light in the dark. I know Brother Matt Bunton and I were talking after church last Sunday, and he, he was asking me about if, if I'd ever been in Linville Caverns, and, 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 and I told him I had. We got to talking about this concept of darkness, folks. You want to experience darkness. You go down into the bowels of Linville Cavern with that little tour guide and let her turn that, turn that flashlight off. And you never experience darkness. I mean, it's like a, you just feel it almost suffocates you. When we walk through times of darkness as God's people, we need a light. There's only one source of light for you and me as believers. The Bible has made that clear from back in the Old Testament. That's what Peter's saying. Use the light. Psalm 119, 105, and 106 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. It is a light. And Peter said, Use the light, the light to guide us in these times of darkness. Look what he says. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. I thought it was interesting. He talked about it until the day dawns. What's the day dawning? In the darkness of this world filled with immorality and violence and pain and suffering and immorality and, and this shroud of darkness in which we live. What is the, the dawn? This night of sin and suffering that we live in, that we endure day after day. What is the dawn? The dawn is the coming of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus comes on the horizon and in His Shekinah glory, He breaks forth and, and the light of the glory of God just sweeps over this landscape and the angels are with Him. Peter says, use the light in the meantime. 
take the Word of God and look at what it has to say about Christ coming again and the hope that is ours as the people of God in heaven one day. I like to go out early in the morning. I usually get up before Jan. <laughs> and, and I like to get up early and, and I like to go and, and I have a little place in the garage and I do some cardiac exercises and I do that for a while. But before I go back in the house, I have a routine. I like to just go out. It's dark. I like to go out. I love the night sky. And I go out and I just look at the, you know, on a, a starlit, you know, early morning before the sun, you know, before the dawn. I, I, I like to look for the, the morning star. And it's Venus. And even in the scripture, it talks about that word means Venus. It, it is the first of the planets and they call it the morning star. And the morning star tells you when you look and you see it breaking on the horizon, it tells you, hey, guess what? Dawn's coming soon. I don't know if you've ever endured through a hard time, a time of brokenness and hurt, when you just, you know, the night times are the worst. And you just, you know, it just seems like the nights last forever. And you're thinking, oh man, if I could just make it till morning. It just seems like the night will never go on. And you're just trudging through. You can't sleep and you're pacing the floor. You're sitting there. I'll sometimes go up on a night like that and just get my Bible and open it up. But you know, just as the, just as the dawn, the, the day star tells us, hang in there. Hang in there. The, the dawn is coming. The new day is coming. Let me tell you something. The Word of God. The Word of God is like a day star that tells you and me, hang on, the time is dark. The times are hard. Sure, you struggle along, but guess what? The dawn is coming. Christ is coming one day. He's going to set things right. And, and this darkness will be cast aside. God's holy Word is absolutely dependable because it doesn't originate with man. That's what Peter says. You want to know what makes it the prophetic word? Peter says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men. God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. We can trust the Word of God. No matter how dark the times get, how bleak life may be, this is like a beacon shining in the darkness, like the day star in the darkest night of time. To those Christians who were persecuted in the first century and enduring hardship and ostracized by their faith, listen, this word is the light that gave them hope. I think about our persecuted brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. I think about the families of those Coptic Christians in Egypt that were needlessly slaughtered because of their faith. And I wonder, how do you get through times like that? When the wickedness is so prevalent, how do you even have hope? I'll tell you how. You go to the light of God's Word and it reminds you that sure, these are dark times. These are despairing times. But the dawn is coming. The dawn is coming. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, use the light. Use the light to shine your way. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen.